the top of Biff's cane. I mean, all Biff from the future. Correct. It was in the time machine because Biff was in the time machine with the sports overnight. Holy shit. You see, while we were in the future, Biff got the sports book, stole the time machine, went back in time, and gave the book to himself at some point in the past. Marty and Doc travel into the future and accidentally create an alternate present. To set things right, they need to go back to the past. This week, we talk about the movie James Wants to Marry, the lie Robert Zemeckis told America's children, and how one kilobyte of memory in the DeLorean's time circuits would have made a huge difference. Nobody calls us chicken, as we find out if Back to the Future Part 2 stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello everyone and welcome once again to the Test of Times Back to the Future Trilogy. This is part two, Back to the Future part two, and I am part one of a two-part hosting duo. (laughs) My name is James Brief and joining me as always is my buddy, my pal, Alan Noah. Hello, I'm part two. Uh, I don't know how I feel about that. You know what? I'll take it. It's fine. I can handle that. We're like Back to the Future Part 1 and 2. We go together so well. Last week when we were talking about Back to the Future Part 1, that was a movie that we both loved as kids. And I have a vivid memory of going to see this movie in the theater and being really, really, really excited to see it. Oh, yeah. The first film came out when we were like five years old. And this film, it didn't come out until 1989. That's four years later. And, you know, for our intents and purposes, when when we're five years old, that's a lifetime. You know, we have been waiting for this film our entire life. Well, half of our lives. Basically. But the entire part that you remember. And I remember when this film first came out on uh, October 22nd, 1989. I did not see it uh, opening weekend. I saw it like the second or third weekend and I remember the Monday after it came out the kids coming into school and like they're talking about all this stuff and I was so jealous I remember these two kids coming in and they were like did you see it yeah I saw it and there's two Dr. Browns and two Marty McFlies and I'm just listening in and I'm like whoa, this sounds insane. And I was so excited to see it. And I finally got to see it. And when that opening jingle comes on again of Steven Spielberg Presents, I was just giddy. I was so happy and excited for a new Marty McFly adventure. Yeah, I don't remember hearing kids talking about it. I do remember seeing it at the movie theater that was closest to our apartment and it was a really crappy theater like it was the kind of theater that like even though it was closest you never went there because it was just that like crappy and skeevy kind of 
Uh, but for whatever reason, we saw Back to the Future Part 2 there. And I definitely remember the very end of the movie, which, you know, we'll get to. But when they show you that little montage of what's coming in Back to the Future Part 3, like that kind of blew my mind because that wasn't a thing you saw, you know, at the end of a movie, even a movie where you kind of figured maybe there would be a sequel or you knew that there was a sequel. You never saw like a trailer for that sequel at the end of a movie. And that definitely made me feel like, whoa, did they already like make that movie? I think I was a little confused by that, but definitely like intrigued to like, okay, well now I know what I'm doing next summer. I'm going to go see that movie. Right. And this movie came out, uh, like I said, in November. And this was, it was a relief because it wasn't another four years with the conclusion. It's coming out in six months. Right. But this film, Dr. Brown has come back and Doc is like, you know, Marty, you got to come back with me back to the future. But this time he means the future 2015, which is 30 years in the future. If you remember that modern day for this uh, universe is set in 1985. Right. So uh, they're going to go to the future and they have to bring Jennifer with them because it involves their kids. And we mentioned this last week, but Back to the Future Part 1, despite what uh, people might remember when they saw To Be Continued uh, after the uh, the movie ended, that was not in the original release. That was uh, added for home video to kind of generate excitement for the sequels. And when they first wrote the first film, it was not meant to be a trilogy. And the idea that they wrote in the end that there's going to be an adventure of Marty and his future wife. I think they probably made a mistake there because Jennifer, I mean, it was played by Claudia Wells in in part one. The actress did not come back for part two. They replaced her with uh, this actress, Elizabeth Shue. Yes. Um, Who who wears a terrible wig, I'll say, uh, in this film. It's, It's really weird. I guess. I mean, she's going for the other actor's hair. It's a little bit weird, but it's still Elizabeth Shue. Therefore, brrr. Yeah, I mean, the weirder part about Jennifer is not Elizabeth Shue or her hair. The weirder part is her role in this film. Just because I was excited in the first film because it was Marty. Marty was not going to be born. But to be honest, I wasn't really that upset that his brother and sister might not be born. It was Marty I cared about. So in the premise of this film that Jennifer's kids, like, who are these kids? Like, it seems like you got 30 years to fix this. Why is there such a rush? I don't think the jump start of this film really is the most exciting thing, but, you know, it was written into part one, so they had to go with it in part two. And I think what they do is they kind of take the lazy way out. The characters realize bringing Jennifer was not a good idea, so they just zap her unconscious. And she's basically unconscious for essentially the rest of the trilogy. Uh, Yeah, this is not a role where Elizabeth Shue has a lot to do. But it's interesting, um, you know, we mentioned last week that uh, Marty McFly was almost cast as Ralph Macchio. So it would have been really interesting if Ralph Macchio winds up getting reunited with his love interest from The Karate Kid. That is a very good point. But to recap the plot of this movie, Marty and Doc Brown travel to the year 2015 to help Marty's future children. That goes pretty much according to plan, but... Future Biff steals Doc's time machine, goes back to 1955, and gives his younger self a sports almanac. When Marty and Doc return to 1985, they're in an alternate timeline, where Biff is rich, powerful, and married to Marty's mom, Lorraine. To fix the present, Marty and Doc have to travel back to 1955, which is made more complicated by the fact that they need to avoid their past selves from their first adventure in 1955. 
you know, everything that happened in Back to the Future 1. You know, I give uh, the screenwriters a lot of credit for for respecting the audience enough to give a kind of complicated plot for a, a big blockbuster film. You know, the easy way to do this is just, you know, send them to the future and have just a random adventure in the future, or just kind of send them to the future, and then afterwards, the original premise of this film, I don't know if you know, was to send them to a new timeline, which was going to be the late 60s. Yeah, and uh, George and Lorraine were going to be hippies. Yeah, and it was going to be something like that, and, you know, it could have been just another adventure, that of course, Marty changes the timeline, and there's probably going to be some cute little, like, Forrest Gump-like reference that Marty is the one who winds up, you know, helping the Apollo 11 astronauts get to the moon. You know, something silly like that, or Doc Brown, you know, helps them out. I give them credit for this complicated uh, film, because I wouldn't say it's necessarily, like, memento Christopher Nolan level, uh, the concentration you need, but on paper, it's kind of confusing. It makes sense in the film, but there's a lot going on in this movie. Yes, I agree. It does require you to kind of pay attention, and there are a few moments where I did feel like they went out of their way to not even just explain something to the audience, but re-explain it. Like Doc says to Marty twice, don't forget, there's the other you that's also here in 1955. Like, yeah, we know, you already said that. But they felt the need to re-impress that upon the audience. I kind of hate that because I, I want movies to treat me with some intelligence and not talk down to me. But I get it because, yeah, this is complicated and it is, you know, it does require you to be paying attention. I mentioned last week that uh, I watched this uh, trilogy with my girlfriend who had never seen... Well, she had seen part one when she was a kid. She didn't remember it at all. And watching part one and part two two nights in a row was definitely very helpful because, you know, you have to remember in 1989, there's not really a huge home video market. You would really need to know the first film well to kind of remember all the subtle details that are going to be referenced in part two. So I think it is important for them to be like, remember, Marty, we were here in 1955 and they actually at one point take out a blackboard and draw it out for you. I think it is helpful for them to guide the audience through this, especially with the limitations. Most people out were not Alan and James who were, you know, if they could legally marry a movie, they would have married Back to the Future in 1985. Wait a second. Is that the reason you're still a bachelor? Like you, you think marriage equality should be that you could marry a movie? Is that what you think? <laughs> is that what you're hoping for so you can marry Back to the Future? If that happens, I still want to be best man. Would you want me to marry part one or part two when Elizabeth Shue shows up? I want you to marry whatever movie makes you happy, James. But you want me to marry the one with Elizabeth Shue? I mean, I'd kind of rather you didn't, so that way Elizabeth Shue is still on the market for me, to be totally honest. Hi, Courtney. <laughs> uh, she, she'll never listen to it. It's fine. <laughs> but since this movie came out four years after the first movie, was it still a mammoth hit or had the audience kind of cooled on Doc and Marty? Uh, I mean, the film was a, a big hit. It opened at number one with uh, $27 million. The budget was about twice as much. Uh, it was $40 million. And you can tell this is state-of-the-art, this film. 
so $28 million pretty much it opens uh, $43 million on its five-day opening weekend, which was actually uh, a record for a five-day weekend. Uh, the previous uh, number one for a five-day weekend, it was a movie that was wildly successful, but I'll bet you if you took all the dialogue of this film, it could be put on like six or seven pages. Well, that was what you did for Rocky IV. That's exactly it. Yeah, Rocky IV. So uh, the film uh, wound up uh, grossing $118 million domestically, $330 million worldwide. So, uh, yeah, the film was a big success. It actually wasn't quite as successful as the first film domestically, but uh, this film was a massive hit. And as we talked about last week, spawned uh, cartoons and universal rides that were there for 25 years. I mean, this film, though it didn't spawn anything after part three, was just in the zeitgeist for at least two decades. Yeah, and when the movie starts, it's basically the ending scene of Back to the Future 1 with one notable difference. Jennifer has been recast. And I was reading today that in 1989, audiences didn't really notice that uh, Jennifer had been recast. One, because, you know, they probably saw the movie four years ago. Two, they make Elizabeth Shue out to look like the first Jennifer. And three, it is a pretty small role. So it's not super noticeable you know this isn't like today where if an actor is recast it's all over twitter and there's a million think pieces on buzzfeed and whatever about it like people just didn't know and uh the reason why the actor dropped out was because her mother got sick from cancer and she decided to not do part two because she wanted to be with her mom it wasn't like she was fired certainly there was none of the bad blood like there was with uh, Crispin Glover, why he didn't return. We'll get into that as we go. But um, pretty quickly, they're in 2015. And the most notable thing about the quote-unquote future that this movie shows us is that there are flying cars. I feel like I read something where Zemeckis or Gale was saying, we didn't really think there would be flying cars in 2015. But if you're making a movie about the future, you got to have flying cars, right? And I don't know. It is kind of lame that here we are in 2021 and we don't have flying cars. Why would you want the average person trusted with a flying machine, Al? Like, I do not want these things flying over my house. Absolutely not. I mean, I think people are pretty trustworthy. I mean, for the past year, lots of people have been wearing masks and people ran out to get the vaccine right away. And oh, I see your point. Yeah, but, uh, you know, of course, everything about the future always talks about flying cars, flying cars. Like, I don't know if you ever do this, but I just stop and think how absolutely science fiction-like things are sometimes uh, these days. Like, I have the culmination of every single piece of knowledge and every piece of art and music ever created by the human species in my pocket. Yeah. And, you know, I could order a pizza at any moment from my pocket, and I could, you know, order a plane ticket to take me to Bora Bora from my pocket right now, or I could put on goggles that could take me to Bora Bora, but we don't have flying cars. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to be said about the predictions that this movie makes about the future and what it gets right and what it gets wrong. And there's been a million 
articles and things online about it. There's a gag about the justice system works very efficiently because they've abandoned all lawyers. That's not true. And there's a Jaws 19, and no, they didn't get up that far. But that's also a joke that doesn't really stand up because they stopped making Jaws after 4. And in 1985, they had probably just made Jaws 4. So had they known, they probably would have gone with a different film maybe. Yeah, I think it's because, you know, Spielberg is a producer on Back to the Future and he directed Jaws. So, yeah, it's kind of funny. There's a whole thing about the Cubs win the World Series in 2015. And as you might remember, in 2015, the Cubs were in the playoffs. They were eliminated by the New York Mets on the day that this movie takes place in in 2015. Hmm. So it was kind of funny. But the Cubs did uh, make it to the World Series the following year. But the joke kind of falls flat because in 1989 or even 1985, amazing that there's no baseball franchise in the entire state of Florida because the Florida Marlins wouldn't come for uh, like basically around the time of part two coming out. Was but it like 92, 93? Same something? year as the Rockies came out. I think I want to guess like 91. But um, the joke is that the Cubs win the World Series. And that's a joke in and of itself because, you know, for 100 years, basically, the Cubs didn't win. So the Cubs win the World Series is a joke. And then the Cubs beat Miami. That's the second crazy thing. But, you know, when you look at it today, it's, yeah, the, the Cubs and the Marlins. Like, they were both, like, at different times, like, very good teams, uh, you know, recently. Right. In the movie, though, it's like the Miami Gators or something, or maybe they don't even say what the team is, but it looks like an alligator. Right, right, something like that. But uh, Marty's son, Marty Jr., is going to be solicited by uh, Biff's grandson, Griff. And Griff is going to solicit Marty to go on some robbery or something. Marty's going to get caught. It's going to cause a chain reaction. The sister's going to try to break Marty Jr. out of jail. She gets caught. The whole family goes down the tubes because of this one event. Right. Which is kind of weird because it's contradicted within this own film by several characters saying that the downfall of Marty McFly happens at a completely different time earlier than 2015. But uh, we'll probably get into that more next week. Yeah. I mean, this is like the inflection point that Doc has identified. And so, okay, you just kind of go with it. But the plan is for... Doc to knock out the real Marty Jr. and Marty to take the place of his son. Unfortunately, the real Marty Jr. does show up because the stun gun that Doc uses didn't have that much juice on it because he had already used it to knock out Jennifer. So Marty Jr. does show up and then is kind of like beat up by Griff. And then Marty takes his place and tells Griff no. And then there's sort of like a reenactment of the chase scene from Back to the Future 1 except this time it's around the 2015 version of Hill Valley. And instead of being on a skateboard, this time Marty is riding a hoverboard. And every kid in the world wanted a hoverboard. And I remember watching on TV a special about Back to the Future Part 2 where Robert Zemeckis said, oh yeah, the hoverboards are real. That technology has been around for a while. It's just that the parent groups won't let the toy companies release it. And I remember that too. It was parent groups because that's such a 1989 thing. Mothers against dangerous toys, you know, something like that. Yeah, and I, like a lot of other kids, totally believe that. There's no internet to look this up on. Kids heard that on TV. Kids believed it. And it was just Robert Zemeckis making a joke 
I guess good for you, Bobby Z. You think you're so funny. You you got my hopes up. Like, that wasn't really cool. But it's still a cool chase scene. Marty is able to get Griff and his gang to crash into the courthouse. They're arrested. The day is saved. And then you're like, oh, I thought this was going to be like the whole movie saving Marty's kids. But that part of the plot wraps up by like, I don't know, minute 10 or 15 or so? It's something very early on. And, you know, I think the movie does make a a good decision not to spend the majority of the film in the future. Yeah. Because, you know, uh, for all the fun things when you watch it in 1989, there are, you know, cringy bad things, especially, you know, my girlfriend and I were watching it, and she laughed when she first heard, the future is 2015. I mean, yeah, we did not have holographic jaws biting you in town square. Yeah, I mean... I think you could make the argument that a lot of the 2015 portion of this movie doesn't stand the test of time just by virtue of the fact that it is now in the past. And when this movie came out, it was in the future. And a lot of the things they portrayed in that future just didn't come to pass, you know, for better or worse. But a lot of this part of the movie kind of doesn't stand the test of time for that reason. You know, I always think it's interesting, these kind of things, like, we talked about Blade Runner, that what does it take place in, like, 2017 or something? Something like that. Something like that. You know, 1984 is supposed to be somewhat futuristic as well. I give it a pass, because, you know, theoretically, a lot of these things could still happen, but there are some things that are just, like, bad decisions. And there's some that I think are not supposed to be real, but they're just supposed to be fun, like... There's one that's incredibly stupid, but do you notice that Marty wears a double necktie? No, I did not. Oh, it's amazing. Like, 45-year-old Marty wears a, a, a double necktie, and it's, like, neon yellow. Like, it's really funny looking. Hold on. I want to Google this. Hang on a second. Oh, my God. He's wearing two ties next to each other. That's so stupid. That is really, really dumb. I did not notice that when I watched the movie yesterday. I got to be honest. That one's fun. I will say, though, the self-tying shoelaces, I think something like that's inevitable. I think self-drying, not necessarily that you have, a, you have like a blow dryer in there, but clothing that could conform to, to your body, not necessarily electronically like that. There's a lot of things that are possible. Um, when Griff and his uh, gang, they crash into the courthouse, there's essentially a, a pretty good-looking drone, like a USA Today drone that flies down and like takes pictures of them and it looks a little bulkier but I think those are pretty cool when they go to the uh, McFly house and you know you have your voice activated everything in the house and voice activated was always a very big futuristic thing demolition man and 2001 and but you know Alexa can do any of those things and you can say Alexa turn on you know all these different channels my television is hooked up to that some things they get right um, you know hydrating sure. a pizza no, but they definitely did have like interactive video conferencing. Look, we did that for the last year to do this podcast seamlessly to the point where the entire world went to work on uh, video conferencing for a year. And they do that in this film. They do it pretty exactly like what we would see today. True, except for the part where they send a fax after they have the video conference. Absolutely. I will say, though, that for some strange reason, the medical world still uses a lot of faxes. And no, you can't just email it. And other times I've, like, 
wanted to just send a PDF, but no, I had to print out something and then fax it. It's funny. I just had a conversation with a friend where she was talking about how in her email signature, she has her preferred pronouns. And she's like, yeah, you know, it's it's my name, my pronouns, my phone, my email, my fax and everything. And I'm like, wait a second, wait a second. You have your pronouns in there, which is modern. And your fax? That's like from 30 years ago. And she's a lawyer. And she was saying like, yeah, she still has to use faxes for certain things. So I guess they are still around. But They're less common, obviously. But the whole reason why we go to the McFly's future home is because because Doc knocked out Jennifer and kind of left her to the side, the police pick her up and they think that she is the Jennifer of the future, 2015 Jennifer. So they bring her home and now Doc and Marty have to rescue her. Meanwhile, old Biff, he sees that Marty bought a sports almanac because he went into a nostalgia store and figured, hey, I could bring this back to 1985 with me and make a little money gambling. But Biff has a plan where he's going to basically steal Marty's idea, and he takes the DeLorean, brings it back to 1955, and gives the sports almanac to his younger self. I didn't understand, though, why Doc built this time machine without any kind of like safety mechanism where any random person can just walk in and take it and, you know, use it to go back in time. Shouldn't there be like, you know, a key, a security code, something? You mean where there's a keypad in the middle of this uh, car's dashboard? You can just easily have a keypad password. Uh, yeah. yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So I guess they didn't do that. I mean, there's a lot of things I didn't really get. When old Biff goes back to 1955 to, to do his evil deed, why does he come back to 2015? That's a really good question. The only answer I can come up with is what else is he going to do? Like, where is he going to go? Well, it's interesting. Where does he go? Because there's a deleted scene explains it very well. But I think there might have been a good decision to keep it out. Right after old Biff comes back to uh, 2015, you see that he's kind of in pain. And he's clutching his chest. And he's, like, curled over the back of uh, another car hiding. You remember this part? Yeah, yeah. This Biff is going to fade out of existence like what was happening to Marty in the first movie. And I remember from that same made-for-TV special where Zemeckis said that the hoverboards were real, they showed this deleted scene, and they're like, oh, it shows you that he fades out of existence. And they cut it because he said that, you know, audiences were confused by it. And I understand that. It is confusing. But it's also confusing in the movie as it is, where old Biff is just kind of clutching his chest, and then the camera pans away from him, and you never see him again. So it's kind of confusing either way and would he be able to travel back to 2015 and then fade out of existence or would he fade out of existence right away because the movies are a little inconsistent on that in part one the mcfly children are fading out of that photograph slowly over time but at the end of this movie when marty burns the sports almanac the newspaper changes like instantly so Why does it happen instantly sometimes and sometimes it takes a while for things to fade in and out? Oh, I think I can actually answer that because... Please do. When things change instantly in this universe, it's because something definitive happened. Like Marty burns the almanac 
everything instantly turns back. However, in the first film, with uh, taking George out of the uh, way of the car so that Lorraine falls in love with Marty, the universe still has a probability that Marty and his siblings are going to be born. It's just less now. It is okay. not inconceivable. And similarly, Biff, um, you know, he goes back to the future. And we see in the past that it's not for a little while that young 1955 Biff even believes that this almanac's real. So if you think about it, there should be a little discrepancy between old Biff going back and him fading away. So my headcanon can explain this one. I can see that. I think that's fair. And the only reason, really, that they include this part at all, old Biff kind of uh, in pain, they they kind of did have to leave that in a little bit because he's in such uh, confusion and pain that he accidentally leaves behind the uh, head of his walking staff, you know, his cane. So that is going to be the clue that's going to help Doc and Marty later. But they wind up rescuing Jennifer from their house, and they go back to 1985. Right. Except something ain't right with this 1985. Marty goes back to what he thinks is his house, but it's not his house. There's another family living there, and he bumps into his old principal, Strickland, while he's trying to look at a newspaper to see the date. Uh, And, you know, Strickland holds a a gun on him and is like, you're not going to steal my paper again. This is not the same place. But it is 1985, And then Marty sees that the courthouse with the busted uh, clock on it is now the Biff Hotel and Casino or something like that. And Biff has made a fortune for himself using the sports almanac that his future self gave him. But while Marty's at the casino and he's looking at this like video retrospective on Biff's life, which handles a lot of the exposition for us uh, quite conveniently. Uh, Biff's goons knock him out and they bring him up to the 27th floor. It's sort of like a callback to the first movie where Marty has been knocked out from the car and he's talking to his mom. And then, you know, the lights come on and it's not quite his mom because in the first movie, it's his mom as a teenager. Here, it's his mom with large fake breasts and they're in the hotel And she's married to Biff now because apparently in this version of the present, George McFly died in 1973 and Biff married Lorraine. George McFly was murdered in 1973. We don't really know how, but uh, he was shot and killed, as we see in a newspaper headline. He doesn't believe it at first, so he goes to George's grave, and that's where Doc finds him, because he figured he'd eventually find him there. And Doc brings him back to his lab, and Doc explains to Marty and the audience exactly what's going on. We know as the audience that old Biff stole the almanac, but he realized that at some point in the past, like before 1985, something changed the timeline, and now they're living in an alternate and evil 1985. Evil from whose point of view? Right, exactly. Yes, it could be a utopia. They do find old Biff's cane and also the uh, almanac bag from that store. So they figure out what he had done, which is, like you said, basically stole Marty's idea. And Marty goes to Biff's uh, hotel and basically goes up to the uh, penthouse and interrupts Biff like in the company of some scantily clad women who are not Lorraine, his wife. 
Mm-hmm. Biff Tannen, of all the people who would cheat on his marital vows. Really? I mean, if you can't trust that guy. The reason that Marty goes back to Biff is to find out exactly when old Biff gives young Biff the sports almanac. Because, you know, according to Doc, like, we don't know when that could have been. But shouldn't they? Because on the time circuits, doesn't it say last visited? It's like where you're going, where you are, and where you've been. So shouldn't the time circuit tell? Or maybe not. Maybe if they looked at it right away, they would have seen it. But then it would just say, you know, October, whatever, 2015. Unless Doc was smart enough to put like one kilobyte of of memory in this uh, computer so it could actually remember all of the uh, places it's been. But you're right. All you have to do is check the logs and he'd see, uh, you know, 1955. But uh, they, they do it the old school way. They just get it from Biff. And Tom Wilson... He is not nearly as successful as he should be. And maybe to his own fault because he was so good at this role that maybe he got kind of got typecast or something. But he is great. He plays several different roles in this film. I mean, Leah Thompson plays alcoholic Lorraine, young Lorraine, and like, you know, 40-year-old hot Lorraine. Biff, he does even more. You know, in the first film, he played old bully Biff, young bully Biff, and then old, uh, you know, submissive Biff. And this one, he plays the grandpa who's kind of a bully but smart. Uh, Old Biff has gotten smart in his old age, you know, smarter. And he also plays young dumb Biff. He plays Griff, and he also plays the 1985 uh, Rich uh, Biff. And I love the way he tells Marty the story because you could tell that he's he's smarter than he was in 1955, but he's still kind of a dummy. Because he's like telling Marty, he's like, yeah, this old guy came up to me with an almanac. I didn't see the family resemblance. Like, you moron. Like, he looks just like you. It has to look like what your grandpa probably looks like. Yeah, I mean, it's 60 years later, so it's kind of different. It's also like the classic, like, Bond villain thing where he just explains everything that happened when he doesn't need to. As soon as Marty mentions the almanac, Biff could and maybe should just kill him instantly. Although you could say that maybe Biff never had anyone to talk to about the sports almanac, and so now he can talk to someone about it, and he'll enjoy these three minutes before he kills his stepson. In a way, I think you're absolutely right, because you're right, Biff was never supposed to tell anyone about the almanac, but he was warned that nobody knows about the book, but one day there is going to be a crazy old scientist and a young kid that are going to go around asking you about the book. So he has been waiting for this for 30 years. He even says, I never thought it would be you. But he knew that someday he was going to talk to this uh, scientist and this uh, young kid. That's true. We should also mention that the fact that George McFly is murdered in this timeline, it works for Marty's motivation. But it is also a factor of Crispin Glover not wanting to return to this franchise I mentioned last week that Crispin Glover had been feuding with uh, Zemeckis and Gale. Apparently, they were lowballing him for this movie. They were going to pay him less than they were paying Thomas Wilson and Leah Thompson. And uh, he wanted as much money as Marty McFly. Depending on who you talk to, there's different stories. But the interesting thing is Crispin Glover actually sued the producers of this movie because they were using his likeness 
one, by using clips from Back to the Future 1 without his permission, and two, by using like the facial prosthetics that they made while they were making the first movie for 40-something-year-old George. They used that on the new actor who plays George in the future, so they were really trying to make it look like Crispin Glover without it being Crispin Glover, and there was a big lawsuit, and now because of that, when an actor is recast or dies or something like that, the studios are very, very careful about using old footage and getting permission and recreating likenesses, and that is stipulated in contracts now like it never was before, and uh, a lot of that is kind of credited to this fight that Crispin Glover had with Universal. Oh, I remember um, when uh, Rocky Balboa, Rocky Six, came out. I remember reading that uh, the actor who played Apollo Creed, Carl Weathers, he, for some reason, was holding out and he didn't want to sign off on giving uh, consent for his likeness. For You know, all Rocky films have flashbacks from the other films. So it was completely absent. They can mention the character Creed, but they couldn't show any of the clips. So another thing from the murder of George McFly that I thought was interesting was the headline. It actually said local author murdered. Right. So you're wondering last week, like, why does Biff want this woman? And I think especially in part two, he wants Lorraine because not only did he kind of want one and she said no to him and, you know, you want what you can't have. But if this George was murdered, was an author, that means this is the confident George, which yeah. means that this is the George that beat up uh, Biff. Which means in this timeline, between 1955 and 1973, even though he won some uh, horse races, he will always be known as the man who got beaten up at prom or the enchantment under the sea dance. Right. And so he needs to murder that guy. You know, it's a little nod that he's murdering the confident George. Yes. And this movie does have like an escalation from in Back to the Future 1, it's kind of about bullying and punching, although also attempted rape. But in this movie, Biff is kind of graduated to murder and attempted murder. And even like when they're in 1955 and Biff is going after Marty, he's like kind of trying to kill him with his car. You know, it's not like, I'm going to beat you up. It's like, you caused $300 worth of damage to my car. I am going to drive you into the side of this tunnel and murder you. Oh, yeah, it's not like in the first film where, yeah, the hoodlums, they they sucker punch Marty and throw him into a trunk of a car. Okay. You know, you forget Biff, like, he's really 30 seconds from actual rape of Marty McFly's mom. Like, this is a total sociopath that, in the original timeline, he just turns out to be an asshole middle manager somewhere. Right. But, I mean, this guy had the capabilities of, once he has power and money, I mean, he is a horrible, horrible sociopath. But after Biff reveals to Marty, like, all the details of how he got the almanac— Marty and Doc go back to 1955. There's a little line of like, oh, I wonder why it's the same day as the Hill Valley Thunderstorm. Maybe that day has cosmic significance in the space-time continuum. Or it's just a coincidence. I love that. It's just like earlier in the film when he's warning that, 
Old Jennifer, young Jennifer can't meet, otherwise they'll create a chain reaction which will destroy the universe. Or, well, it might just be localized to our galaxy. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's a great line. And I just love the escape from 85. There's just this part of the top where Biff uh, has Marty at gunpoint and is like, you know, I'm going to shoot you with the same gun as your dad and jump if you want. I'll make it look good and clean. And Marty jumps. And I was completely like, what? And what a great scene. Marty just kind of floats up and it turns out he's standing on the DeLorean, the flying DeLorean. And they, you know, knock out Biff and they go back to 1955. And uh, just as a 10-year-old, I was able to follow it. And it's just, it's a very complicated but exciting adventure and you know this is a film that is not just a sequel that kind of interacts with the story events of the first film this is a sequel that interacts with the movie of the first film i mean it's really really interesting and to someone like me and you who had seen this film a dozen times by the time we saw part two and really did know every detail it was fascinating the first time seeing it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, as soon as Doc and Marty arrive in 1955 and Doc is like explaining what they're going to do and how he has to get the almanac and he can't interfere with their other versions of their other selves. Once again, Doc is like running back and forth down the street and Marty's like running back and forth after him. And it's just like, that's just a thing that they do. Why? Who knows? It's just funny. I wonder if uh, Christopher Lloyd kind of did that by himself. And then Michael J. Fox is, you know, just like go with it. Because until the director says cut, you are that character. So you react as Marty would react, not as Michael J. Fox would react. I just wonder because it seems like Christopher Lloyd's kind of weird. Kind of has that Jeff Goldblum kind of like fun weirdness to him. Yeah. And I think it's also just like the character who is eccentric and like, Maybe as an eccentric inventor, he needs to run back and forth while he's talking about his theories. Like, that's just how his mind works. Like, okay, like, I can buy that. That's fine. Yeah. I like when uh, Doc is telling him, all right, we're going to split up. I'm going to do these parts. You're going to go to Biff and try to steal the almanac back. And he says, don't wear anything inconspicuous. And he immediately looks like, like a stereotypical, like gumshoe kind of like you know leather jacket and everything i do hate his fedora i really don't like fedoras on most people it looks good basically on one character ever in the history of hollywood and you know who that is of course indiana jones i hear what you're saying the outfit is there for two reasons one the smash cut gag where doc says get something inconspicuous inconspicuous smash cut to the most conspicuous outfit ever and two, to make it very, very clear to the audience which Marty is which. They cannot look anything alike except for the fact that they're both Michael J. Fox and they look the same. So, like, you need to make their outfits look totally different. Yeah, uh, you're right. That's exactly why they really do it. So, uh, you know, inconspicuous Marty, he sneaks over to... Uh, Biff, who's now just paid the bill for the manure damage from the first film's courtyard, and he's taking it back to his garage, and Marty is hidden in the back seat, and there's a, a great subtle little thing where Biff is just walking down the street at one point, and there's these little kids that their ball gets away from them, and Biff picks up this kickball, and the kid's like, oh, give it back, can you give us back our ball? He goes, yeah, you want your ball? Here's your ball! And he basically throws it on the roof of some gated 
in-house. And he just laughs at them. These, like, six-year-old kids. And it's just pure evil to do that to, to playing children. But it's a great little tiny uh, detail on, on the character of Biff Tannen. Yeah, I mean... If you're, like, being a bully at school, maybe someone could make the argument that, oh, he's just doing it to posture in front of his friends so his friends will think he's cool. He's just doing this on his own. Like, no one's watching. He's just being a jerk for the sake of being a jerk. Oh, there's little things throughout the film. There's a part in the alternate 1985 where he sucker punches Marty, like, when his bodyguards are holding him. He's a fake tough guy. He's a fake alpha guy. You know, we knew it from the first film, but... Biff Tannen does not change. I think he's the identical character, and he's very true to his character, even to the point where I, I appreciate he's a little bit smarter in the in the second one. That's fine, because 60 years later, he even calls his younger self a moron for doing that make-like-a-tree-and-get-out-of-here mistake. Like right. I like that. I like the evolution of the Biff character. I think he might be one of the most fleshed-out characters in this trilogy. And now old Biff comes to meet him, and we see the conversation we referenced earlier where he, he shows him... Uh, the almanac and uh you know we get to find out uh, you know exactly how he uses it question how come when old biff talks to young biff it does not create a rift in the space-time continuum or neither of them pass out when the two jennifers come face to face in 2015 they pass out i think you answered the question earlier is that um He's like 60 years older than him. I think that especially 17-year-old Biff is way too stupid to understand this stuff. And 17-year-old Biff does not read science fiction theater. He doesn't know what a time machine is, even the concept of this. But when you look at Jennifer, she's 17 and 47. Like, obviously, it's, you know, the same actress, just with makeup. But... You know, if you bumped into your 17-year-old self, I mean, I knew you when you were practically 17. You know, you're not quite 30 years older, but you would instantly recognize yourself. I don't know that I would. I mean, maybe, but I don't know for sure that I would. I just, I felt like it was a little bit of the movie violating its own rules and not giving an explanation. The other notable thing is that these scenes where old Biff interacts with young Biff and old Jennifer sees young Jennifer, and especially where Marty is having dinner with Marty Jr. and Marlene, his daughter, they were using new technology to have like a single actor interact with themselves. They had done that earlier in the 60s with different technology. But like this was new technology that allowed them to move the camera back and forth in these scenes where it's one actor playing against themselves. And it looks pretty damn good. There's usually like a line, you know, between them, like a line in the windshield or something that kind of helps like break up the frame. But it still looks really good. Oh, it looks fantastic. And I just remember being very impressed by a lot of the uh, special effects. Some special effects you can clearly see green screen, blue screen, but not those ones. Yeah, I mean, it, it looks good. And there are these shots when Marty goes back to the Enchantment Under the Sea dance where it's literally just the footage from Back to the Future 1. That's definitely the case if Crispin Glover's in the shot. But there's also some things where they did some reshoots with Michael J. Foxen and Leah Thompson and Thomas Wilson and all those guys because all of those actors were still involved. But it's still very cool because it recontextualizes a lot of what happens in the first movie. It shows you these other moments, like you said, Biff going to pay the mechanic after his car was damaged, and 
what happens after George knocks out Biff. Well, that's when Marty is finally able to grab the almanac. And as Biff is coming to, Marty punches him again, which is funny. Also a little bit confusing, though, because if George didn't knock him out that hard, then why wouldn't Biff have come back in Back to the Future 1 to, like, fight George again during the Enchantment Under the Sea dance? I guess you could just say that he does come to for a second, but the guy probably has a concussion. So you could at least say he was not about to go into the dance at that moment. So Fair we'll point. call it that. And after Marty gets the almanac and he's good to go, he dispatches Biff's goons who are going to beat up the other Marty. Like he, he knocks him out with the sandbags and the stage. He can basically get away with it. But he doesn't because Biff confronts him and says, let's fight. And Marty says, no, thanks. And Biff says, what are you, chicken? And this is a new element of Marty's character. This is something we did not see in Back to the Future 1, that Marty cannot be called chicken. If he is, he will fight and make terrible, terrible, stupid decisions. And this was introduced for 2 and 3 because Zemeckis and Gale felt that Marty McFly didn't really have any character flaws in the first movie, which is kind of true. Like, he doesn't go on much of an arc, like, you know, a character development arc. He goes on a journey, but, you know, we see George grow in Back to the Future 1. Marty doesn't really grow in any meaningful way. I disagree with the Bobs, uh, Bob Zemeckis and Gail. Uh, Robert wh- Zemeckis to you. <laughs> yeah. I think he has a flaw in the first film. I think he has no self-confidence. Like his father, he's afraid of rejection. And I think he does go through that uh, character arc in the first one. And actually, there's a really interesting tiny knot I've never noticed until I just saw the film now for the, what, the 20th time. When inconspicuous Marty is in the dance, he's about to crawl on the uh, catwalk and get the sandbags and stuff. He looks at uh, Back to the Future Part 1's Johnny Be Good Marty, and he looks at him and he nods and he's like, nice, he's playing well. Yes, definitely. And I think it's a missed opportunity here because it could be okay that this character trait is introduced after Back to the Future 1 if... It was something that was related to his adventures in Back to the Future 1. In other words, if they had made it be something more like Marty saw how his father was bullied and saw how successful he was when his father wasn't bullied and how he stood up to bullies. So now Marty refuses to be bullied in any way. But that's not exactly what it is here. This is just a little bit more of like, you can't call him chicken or in part three, yellow. Like, it's just not quite there. I agree with you. And this is a completely brand new uh, characteristic of Marty McFly, which is not consistent with the Marty McFly that I liked from the first one. And I think it's kind of lame that he's someone who can't say no to being called a chicken in front of... Like, it's just Biff. Like, it's not like maybe in front of the entire high school crowd, you're a little peer pressured into it. But it's literally just like a back alley. And Biff's like, what are you, chicken? Remember when you were a kid and someone would say, well, he double dog dared you. So you have to do it. You know, like, who cares? Like, I just didn't really like this uh, characteristic of him in this film. Yeah, it is weak. 
So after Biff calls him chicken, then the other Marty knocks out this Marty, and then Biff takes the almanac, and, you know, once again, Marty has to go and get it. And it is sort of like that Toy Story thing I was talking about last week, where every time Marty seems to get the almanac, something else bad happens, and he has to keep going and keep going. And it is a thrilling climax where Marty is trying to get the almanac from Biff, while Biff is driving in the tunnel and Marty has the hoverboard and he's kind of, you know, maneuvering the hoverboard on the tunnel. It is also really stupid, though, the part where Marty is like, I'll just open the car door while Biff is driving and hope he won't see. Like, of course he's going to see. Biff is an idiot, but you're going to notice if you're driving your car and someone opens the door. Of course. Yeah, that's incredibly stupid. Yes. But Marty does get the almanac from Biff eventually, Biff crashes again into the manure truck, which is kind of funny. Marty has the almanac. He's talking to Doc, who's hovering in the DeLorean. He can't land because of the wind. This seems a little thin to me. Like, it's not a plane. It's a flying car. Yeah, it's windy, but just go down. He's like, oh, there's too much wind. I'm going to have to approach from the south. And it's like, uh, can't you just go down? They could have had, like a car or two drive by and just say, like, I can't risk being seen or, you know, the timeline can be messed up. We just went through a whole thing to fix it. Just fly away or fly higher or go above the storm or something. Like, you seem like you're the scientist in a stainless steel car. But then again, to be fair, can something that's not grounded be struck by lightning? I'm not going to ask you a physics question, though, Al. I don't know. But when the DeLorean is struck by lightning, it sends Doc back in time. We know it's to 1885. Also, though, the car is not traveling 88 miles per hour. I saw something that those like weird upside down backwards nines that appear in the sky is meant to signify that the DeLorean was spinning in place and going 88 miles an hour. Uh, That's a bit of a stretch. Right. I mean, you could have had Doc going out of control and he's hitting the accelerator and the wheels are spinning fast. I don't know. It it is a hole there. But either way, um, the timeline's been totally restored, but Doc is gone. And the moment Doc disappears, a mysterious uh, car light uh, comes up to Marty and just says, are you Marty McFly? And when he says yes, he pulls something out of his trench coat, which could be a gun, but it's a Western Union letter. And it turns out it's a letter from Doc Brown from 1885 and all we hear is the first line of the uh, the letter that says I've written to you by calculating that you'll receive this exactly when I got struck by lightning. He realizes that Doc is alive in the Old West. I'm sorry that I have to do this again, but did you recognize the Western Union man? No, I didn't. Who was it? I just asked you if you recognized this actor two episodes ago. It's Mr. Weir, again, from Freaks and Geeks. That's right. He shows up at the end of Stripes, and he shows up here as the Western Union Man. Like I said then, I'm rewatching Freaks and Geeks, so I spotted him easily. Although, also, fun fact, you know who's also in Freaks and Geeks? Thomas Wilson. Biff's other role, where he's not being Biff for Griff for a, a tannin, is, uh, you know, when he's uh, the gym teacher in Freaks and Geeks. But yeah, Mr. Weir strikes again. Yeah. 
and he has only one shot at uh, getting uh, his friend Doc or even getting himself back to 1985, and that's to find Doc Brown. But the only Doc Brown left in this timeline is the Doc Brown from the part one of this film franchise. So we flash back to the end of Back to the Future Part 1, where Marty McFly has just, uh, you know, he's taken the DeLorean back to 1985, and Doc Brown's so happy that he's made an accomplishment in his life, and then suddenly... Marty's back. And he goes, no, I just sent you back to the future. That's right, Doc. I'm back from the future. And then Doc passes out. Well, after he says, great, Scott. And so basically the film uh, does go to a to-be-concluded And, you know, we didn't talk about the production of this film, but originally the first draft of part two was a epic tale that goes from the future to the past and then ends in 1885 and then they eventually get back to 1985. But the film was way too complicated. So they decided to kind of chop it in half and expand both halves. And what we got was the travel to the future and past and and alternate 85. That became part two. And then the Wild West became part three. So they They basically filmed both films concurrently. So the moment part two was over, they already had part three pretty much in the bag. And, you know, this film kind of ends on a downer. Things do not go well for the protagonist at the end of the film. It's kind of an Empire Strikes Back vibe. And, you know, sometimes the audiences, they don't really like that. You can't really leave the theater like that. So right when the film ends and it says to be concluded, we're treated, you know, treated in uh, quotes, to a trailer for Back to the Future Part 3. And, uh, of course, I remember seeing it in the theater and being very excited for all these things that are going to happen. But it totally does spoil what's going to happen. Like, yeah, like this Doc Brown somehow is going to be able to bring him back to the uh, to the Old West. And he's going to reunite with that Doc Brown that we knew. But yes, I did turn off the film before the uh, trailer started. So, so my girlfriend did not get the spoilers of the uh, trailer. That's very on brand for you, James. There's really one shot specifically in that trailer that's really spoilery. Most of the shots are Marty and Doc in the Old West. But there's one shot of Marty wearing his Old West garb, but in 1985, going over to Jennifer and giving her a kiss. Don't show that! That's like the last like five minutes of Back to the Future Part 3. Like, why do they have to include that shot? Like, that one shot to me is like, come on! That is terrible, but to be fair, it's not like uh, YouTube trailers where people are going to be pouring over every single, you know, shot. So, they're not going to see every little thing, but you're right, it absolutely spoils it. Yeah, it did not need to be in there. Um, So, based on, you know, what we do on this podcast, I'm going to ask you, even though I know damn well what the answer is going to be, Do you think Back to the Future Part 2 stands the test of time? You know, there's basically three kinds of sequels, Al. There's sequels that kind of just give you the same film again. You know, Home Alone Part 2, The Hangover Part 2. You know, it's it's the same film. You like the first one, you're technically going to like the second one. Then there's films that go completely bonkers in the second film and just change everything. Uh, You've never seen Highlander Part 2, but you saw Highlander Part 1, where there can be only one immortal. But Part 2 says, no, there can be lots of them. Sean Connery's still alive, and everyone you fought in the first film were aliens. I'm serious. That is the premise of Part 2. Right. But anyway... Um, the third sequel is something that takes the, the first film 
and builds upon it in a unique way that takes these characters and does a legitimate, like, what would really happen to these people? And this film, I think, falls into that third category. Like we talked about earlier, the original premise was just another time machine adventure. You know, this time instead of 1955, it's the late 60s. But I think the fact that they went the very risky move of interacting with the first film, and there's a lot of subtle details to an audience that may not know all these details because they're not obsessing over it with memes every day and you know, knowing all that stuff. I give them a lot of credit for, for giving us a, an intellectual summer blockbuster. I think you had to think about this a little bit. Um, there are definitely flaws with the film. The future part blew me away. Completely blew me away. Like, it made me excited for 2015 when I saw this 1989. <laughs> and, you know, obviously, uh, not even the fact that those didn't really come true, but, like, I realize now, like, those were not good predictions, like a lot of them. True. So a lot of the future doesn't hold up. I said it before, I think the general premise of what leads the second film on is kind of stupid. I, I don't like the uh, kids role because why was everything so rushed? You have 30 years to fix this. Like, just subtly fix it somehow, Doc. But, uh, you know, they, just the acting is so good. The music, while they don't change anything, the music is basically the same exact score as the first one. But I just think it's so much fun fun and it's got so many details that show the little things that like we've been talking about this is our like 10th or 20th reviewing and I'm seeing new things in this film so I just respect the hell out of it I will say though um, you know you gotta ask which one is better and for me I, I used to really kind of go back and forth because I used to think part 2 is more of like an actiony adventure and I still agree it's more of a summer blockbuster but I think part one is a better film. But, oh, part two is such a grand adventure. So, yes, I think Back to the Future part two does stand the test of time. What do you think, Al? Does this film stand the test of time? Oh, absolutely, it does. I agree with what you're saying about a good sequel that can take what you loved about the first movie and instead of just rehashing it, do something cool with it. And this movie does that really, really well when there are callbacks to things that happened in the first movie. They make sense. It doesn't feel forced. It feels like a really radical approach to a time travel movie, like doing time travel movie with the time travel movie that you already did. I mean, I think you can definitely see the influence of this movie specifically on Avengers Endgame when they do all the time travel stuff, but they're going back to scenes that we already saw. Like, Back to the Future Part 2 did that first and did it really well. And Avengers Endgame did it really well, too. Um, but I think this movie sort of allowed for that kind of thing to happen. And my son thought the way that you as a kid thought. Like when we were talking about the Back to the Future movies, he was like, I really like one, but I think two is my favorite. And I think I probably thought that as a kid too, because it was just so cool seeing the future. And it's just so cool seeing all of these scenes from the first movie in a different perspective. And 90% of the 2015 stuff doesn't stand the test of time. And that's a bummer. It's also just a bummer to think of this thing that I thought was futuristic is now in the past, you know, like for me, like that's just kind of a shame and I feel old, but yeah, this movie definitely stands the test of time. It's still really fun, really enjoyable to watch. And, um, it's a really smart sequel and I appreciate it. 
But which one do you appreciate more? Probably the first one. Although, I don't know, with all the rapey stuff and the the edible stuff, you know, uh, him and his mom definitely feels weirder as an adult. Um, I think I would still give it to part one. Well, next week, this trilogy of our podcast episodes will be concluded. We will wrap this up with Back to the Future Part 3, because we gotta, we gotta double back. Is that the name of the ZZ Top song in Part 3? I think so. I'm not totally sure. Regardless, don't miss that episode. Talk to us on social media, at Tested Time Pod, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Let us know your thoughts about Back to the Future, about Back to the Future Part 2. Tell us what you think about Part 3. Sure, why not? You can do that. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever. Hey, have you given us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? If you haven't, you should. Right now. Don't say you're going to do it later. Don't say you're going to do it tomorrow. You're going to forget. Tomorrow's a busy day. You know how tomorrow is. Do it now. And uh, we'll see you next week, everybody. Later. Now make like a tree and get out of here. It's make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it that way.